Hey, movie freaks, freakettes, and fans of all ages, and thanks a bunch for downloading the 31st edition of Scoring at the Movies, the sports movie podcast that races into your lives every second Thursday. We spoil the movies we cover, and we often spoil two or three or nine others, too. I'm the irascible old coot who has a great heart, Pops Ryan Ellis. And here's my fellow curmudgeon who just needs to learn how to be a horse again, Chris DiGregorio. Thanks, Ryan. I am quoting the movie with that, incidentally. I know. I'm glad you didn't tell me I need to learn how to be hung like a horse again, because that would have been really insulting to me. We had a PG episode two weeks ago, and now we've already got one that's bordering (laughs) on R, or E. I haven't cursed yet. We probably will. And much like Seabiscuit and Red in their later years, you and I, between the two of us, might have two good legs. They might both belong to you, but we have two good legs. They do both belong to me so far, yeah. I've got the shittier eyes, you've got the shittier legs. Before we get into anything else, let's talk about your beer. What are you drinking for Seabiscuit here today? In an homage to the cocktail association with horse racing, right? Gimlets at the Kentucky... I think that's right. Gimlets at the Kentucky Derby? Don't ask me. Yeah. And an homage to William H. Macy just constantly having a whiskey or some sort of mixed drink in his hand. Tick-tock. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going with the Red Racer After Hours Pale Ale, an old-fashioned oh. cocktail beer. Cool-looking can, too. It's brown, but it's got some other colors in it. It's pretty cool-looking. It's got a retro sexy lady on it on a bicycle. Oh, right, too. Yeah, it does. Definitely little, fits. little garter showing. My ice changling there in my... What do you call these cups again? This Solo? Solo cup. Is... Oh, well, I'm on whoa. staycation. Oh, he's got a bit of a spillage. I'm on staycation, so I've got some rye and diet once again. Here's a cheers for it. We're still in the hot summer, so we're going to be sweating. I'm already sweating. In homage to William H. Macy's character and all of his awesome Foley work. <laughs> Sound effects, that's right. We should be queuing up a YouTube clip of two glasses clinking when we do that. Food for thought for later podcasts. Before we get into Seabiscuit today, we're going to do some Creed two counter punches, low blows, and speculations. The first okay. one we've already discussed before we started recording, and that is the proper pronunciation of Florian... And I found online an ESPN guy saying Montianu or Montianu. Now you have it here, play it on your phone. Oh God. The was it Romanian pronunciation you found? Montano. So I'm hearing Montiano, but Montianu, but Yeah, I hear it more like Montano. But we were saying Montano. Montano. And that's that was more definitely of a, not right. Yeah, it's more of a French pronunciation okay. of that. I even asked well, you know Allison's my wife, but Breaking news in the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) This just in. On the ticker. This just in. Chris is not a single bachelor that sits around his underwear watching sports movies all day. Um, (laughs) Which isn't to say I don't sit around in my underwear all day watching movies. It's just that I happen to be married at the same Mm -hmm. time. When I spelled the name for her, her instinct was to pronounce it the same way I did, which is more if you were French, because of course we're Canadian, we learn French. It must differ once you get into the Eastern European pronunciations like Romanian. I guess it changes up a little bit. I think the bottom line is neither one of us wants to piss off this Big man. nasty. Big nasty. <laughs> if we've learned anything from this movie is that he can throw a hell of a punch. He surely gets it mispronounced all the time. And maybe the ESPN guy was mispronouncing it also. But he does pronounce every single letter, that ESPN guy. So yeah. that and seems I, more right than what we were saying. And as you said, Ernie Johnson? Is that who that was? Okay, yeah, that sounds right. On ESPN is one of the best in the biz at pronouncing names. So I give him a lot of credit. 
I bow to his interviewing expertise. Okay, some more counterpunches, low blows, and speculations. Also, Adonis in Creed II didn't lose that first fight against Victor. He was probably going to lose the fight, but it oh. wasn't actually over until the illegal punch by Victor. Donnie was down on one knee, and then as Victor rears back, you see the referee starts to say, no, because he knows he's about to hit him illegally. Right. That's why maybe you thought that the fight was already over, is if the referee's saying, it's over, why are you hitting him? No, don't hit him when he's down like that, because that's going to get you disqualified, and it does. So Donnie never in any way lost that fight. He obviously was going to, but he never officially did, even in the sense of it being overturned. Could be in the one time I watched it, I remember the ref was yelling no and waving his Mm -hmm. arms. Stop, I guess he said. I saw the waving of the arms and assumed Mm -hmm. he was calling the fight. And also, last thing I want to say, speculation. There's an empty chair beside Rocky when he sits down after he says, it's your time, to Adonis. My speculation is, is that in a metaphorical nice way that that's the ghost of Apollo Creed sitting there and the two of them are watching the son and his, whatever, unk is watching his nephew? Could be. Because why else are there two chairs sitting beside each other like that? It's almost as if to say, there's somebody else who should be here. Maybe it's supposed to be Adrian, but my take is it's more Apollo. Yeah, in that context, I don't think Adrian would make as much sense as Apollo. But if that's the case, I wish they would have just gone full cheese and put like the force ghost of <laughs> Apollo Creed there. Carl Weathers with yeah. his happy Gilmore arms sitting <laughs> yeah. beside him. Making a stew out of some kind of like bone and Combining potatoes. Combining his <laughs> com- comedic roles in this dramatic series <laughs> yeah. he was in. Okay, so we'll do the horse racing movie now, and that's Seabiscuit. Horse racing movie, I can only think of two that we would probably ever cover. And the other one would be, you probably don't care about this, and I don't really either, but it's on the sports list and the genres. It made the top ten, National Velvet. Elizabeth Taylor is a little kid, Mickey Rooney's in that. Oh, so it's an old one. Very old, 1944. And this, of course, is a lot more recent. It was released by Universal and DreamWorks on July 25th, 2003. Did okay, but really found its audience on DVD and sold over 5 million copies. That's crazy. And I remember Universal really pumping it out there for the Oscars. They wanted it to be nominated for Best Picture, and it was. It was nominated for Best Picture the adapted screenplay, the editing, the cinematography, the sound, the sets, and the costumes. Seven nominations, didn't win any of them, but it probably wouldn't have gotten Best Picture had it not been for those DVD sales, which is also what helped crash a couple years later. I thought this was a much more recent movie. In my mind, it was maybe like a 2010, 2011 type release. It was kind of shocking to me. When I turned on the movie and I saw how young Jeff Bridges looked, I had to like do a double take and recheck what year this movie came out. Mm-hmm. What did you think in respect of those seven nominations for the categories you talked about? Do you think it was at all deserving of any of those? The technical ones, I think. The sound, fine. Yeah, okay, the sets sound and costumes. Was good. It really has a great sense of the time period. This movie tries yep. to jam in everything that happened in America in the years it's set, it yes. seems. And that bothered me, I'll be honest. It was a little too much, it was but too we'll get much. back to that in a second. But in the sense of the technicals, I would say the sound, sets, costumes, that's fine. Cinematography, John Schwartzman, Talia Shire steps on, actually, going a little bit back to the Rocky ah, series with Creed Two. Six Degrees of Rocky. Mm-hmm. Jason see. Schwartzman's brother, stepbrother, I guess it would be. Okay. John Schwartzman. And the editing, that's fine, too. Maybe the screenplay being adapted off of Laura Hillenbrand's 1999 book. Okay, but not this picture. But it lost out, as they all did, to Lord of the Rings Return of the King. And that, I think, was the right choice. That was my favorite movie of that year. Yeah. I agree, as far as those technical things go. The sound in the races was pretty impressive. But when I picked this movie up from you, and you had just watched it... and Literally finishing as you walked in the house. Your speakers had moved halfway across your your TV stand, and mine did the same thing. The bass is so Mm. extreme during those race scenes. You really feel like you're at... My center speaker has the Buddy Christ on it, the little one I bought many years ago. And it just barely hung on from falling off. But it also was bad. 
back. I didn't even notice. It must have been a foot because it moves whenever a movie's really loud, and that was a great example. Seabiscuit, as was Creed Two, for that matter. Yeah. So I agree with you on those five of the seven. I would not have thought it would have been nominated for anything to do with the screenwriting adaptation of anything. The dialogue no. and the voiceover, sure, so aren't worthy. Right. And Best Picture, no, not a chance. This smacked of a movie that desperately wanted to be an Oscar vehicle. Important. I'm so important. Capital guys. I, capital M, capital P, etc. Almost to the point where I feel like it did the subject matter a disservice Maybe because so. if it wasn't so obviously trying to be an award vehicle type movie, I think you could make a more fun and interesting movie more accurate and honest to the actual subject matter and history of the characters involved and tighten it up a lot. Maybe it doesn't get nominated for Best Picture, but I think it maybe becomes a more popular movie overall, especially in its first run release. Yeah, it's long. It didn't feel terribly long. The Natural, we talked about that several weeks ago, felt long. But this one did feel like it was a little bit too long, too. Maybe not quite as much as The Natural. And I would say the actors are believable, and Gary Ross's direction is fine. Yeah. So I'm definitely a thumbs up. I do own the movie on Blu-ray. I don't think I ever bought the DVD, so I've only ever had the Blu-ray, but I went to the trouble of buying that. So I must <laughs> you have only it owned enough. one copy of this movie? <laughs> I've had more than one copy of Rocky Five. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Oh, part of the set. Again, I'll say, part okay. of the set. I can accept that, then. If you ask me about the performances of anybody in this movie, my description would probably be just that. Yeah, they were fine. I didn't have any issues with any of them, really. I had a little bit of a problem when Elizabeth Banks is playing a Mexican woman, that irked me in a 2019 sensibility You know what way? I didn't realize until reading the trivia during this viewing? She's supposed to be Charles Howard, Jeff Bridges' character's second niece-in-law. Wife. Yeah, second wife, but also his niece-in-law. Oh, really? I, I did not pick the... up on that during the no. viewing, and I didn't know that from before. So if that's true, that's a little weird. But her last name is Zapata or something, right? And she's in Tijuana. she got the dark hair. Man, just cast a Mexican actress, or at least mm-hmm. a Latin American actress. Come on, it's not like there's none of them around in 2003. That was a little bit cringeworthy. Mm. Other than that, the performances were all okay. I thought Christopher... Chris Cooper? Chris Cooper. Cooper, I thought, was the best of the bunch for me. He was nominated for a SAG for this movie, and Macy was nominated for the Golden Globe. Actually, Macy was... A little bit surprised, but he was just sticky and fun. He was fun, but he just sort of popped up from time to time. He did not need to be in this movie at all. You'd never need to see his character as much fun as he is. No, but I got so many wonderful ideas for our podcasting recording out of him (laughs) that I'm glad he was. Okay, that's fair. If you see me in here with a lot of slide whistles and xylophones next time we record, (laughs) then you'll know why. One reason why he's probably in this movie is because he was Tobey Maguire's father in Gary Ross's previous movie, the movie he did before this, Pleasantville, which Bev and I covered last year, and I love Pleasantville. Macy's great in that. McGuire's great in that. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why. Although, in the five movies that Ross has directed, I don't think he's had any star come back. Well, I guess McGuire, but Jeff Bridges, I believe, is top build on this. So, okay, McGuire, maybe, but he's had different stars in each one of his movies, I think. I'm right about that. He's only done five as a director. Mm-hmm. And Pleasantville is my favorite of those five films by A Country Mile. This is probably second. I think that's probably the only other one of his movies I've ever seen other than Seabiscuit. Ocean's 8 last year, Hunger Games, the first one, which was a blockbuster. Another one I've seen. And I'm drawing a blank on the fifth one. Okay. <laughs> a few more plaudits for Seabiscuit because it had quite a few of them. It was on the AFI's Top 100 Cheers list. Mm-hmm. Number 50, Dead in the Middle. It's Wonderful Life was number one, the most inspiring movie of all time. Okay, fine, I can see that. Maybe not 50, but okay, it's yeah, reasonable okay. enough. And it was nominated for the Top 100 Genres in the sports category, so that makes sense. We're covering it as a sports movie, and it was on the short list for that, or the long list, I guess you could say. <laughs> the long list, yes. And I said it was successful, the box office, at least successful-ish. It was 17th that year. 
Return of the King was number one and also the Best Picture winner. Elf was number seven. That was a blockbuster in addition to being one of everyone's favorite Christmas movies. Yeah. And this is one of Jeff Bridges' biggest hits, despite all the movies he's been in. Even adjusted for inflation, it's way up there in really? his short list. Yeah. That's surprising to mm-hmm. me. I thought Jeff Bridges was, again, fine. And I'm a big Jeff Bridges fan, generally. If you said Bo Bridges for this one, I would accept that. Because in a lot of scenes, especially early on, he looks so much like his brother. He does, yeah. That's true. I mean, the way they style him and his sort of mellow... Mm-hmm. approach to this role. Lack of a beard, too, because I think Jeff generally has had a beard the last 20 or more, maybe more than that, years, or some kind of facial yeah. stuff, and I don't think Bo usually does. So maybe that face just looks more like Bo when he cut all the whiskers off of him. So when he first came on the screen, your first reaction was like, oh, look at that little put him there. That's, oh, let me just want to squeeze your cheeks. <laughs> the fabulous Baker boys, they interchanged in the yeah. part. One of them worked one day, another one worked the other day. Now, granted, given that this is 2003, this predated most of his real scene-chewy type roles, I guess. True. Not Big Lebowski, but that wasn't really scene-chewy. That was just sort of groovy. But, you know, like his his post-Rooster Cockburn roles, he's always sort of adapted that into various levels of Mm -hmm. let's chew on this dialogue until it's something totally awesome. I wanted a little bit of that in this, but it wouldn't have made sense for the character, obviously. It wasn't what that guy was meant to be. He's meant to be the soothing father figure to Tobey Maguire's Red, whatever his name is. Pollard. 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 I know not a lot about horse racing. Part of it is the sport bothers me a little bit. You know the abuses that end Mm -hmm. up going in, and I think we're both big animal lovers and so i will interject by saying i get when people are upset about this kind of thing for the reasons you're about to say yeah it does seem inhumane well no and no. you've got issues with well, hang on i'll make my point okay. you've got issues with eating pork because you feel that's inhumane because of the way they've been treated you can respond to that in a second my whole thing is we slaughter animals all the time for food sometimes for clothes and sometimes for sport yeah i don't personally do it i don't have the guts to do it but I do feel hypocritical, and this is why I wasn't a dog person until I met Bev, and I can't not be now with the two we have and Fox before, and other dogs we know for that matter, our friends' dogs. But I always felt a hypocritical to say, I love animals, but give me a hamburger. So there's my stance on that. But I don't blame people for being upset about this whole concept so they would have a problem with this movie in the first place. To a certain degree, I agree with that because I've always been a huge animal lover, but also a big carnivore at heart. There are certain things I don't eat on ethical grounds, reasons, and I try to justify that on the basis more or less of the intelligence of the animal in addition to the way it's as long as they're stupid you'll slaughter them and eat them to a certain degree that's not untrue fuck you chickens in the case of (laughs) cattle cows would not exist anymore if they weren't raised by humans for eating purposes they are dumb animals and this doesn't come from me this comes from people like my sister who have worked and lived with them and know that well as a vet as well we should say she's a vet i am a huge anti-factory farming person i Mm -hmm. spend a lot more money on meats and things like that knowing that it's humanely raised and things like that, because that's how I make my peace with that kind of hypocrisy you talked about. But at the same time, I'm not anti-horse racing entirely if I knew that they were treating the animals well. But this I, horse is treated very well. Seabiscuit is, and so is War Admiral. Well, it's not, though. The, the, well, when they have it and it becomes the champion horse, yes, it is. exactly. But really up until that point, it is a, oh, yeah. abused terribly. And I think five years ago, there was a big hubbub because PETA had found some videos of some very well-known and successful trainers in modern-day horse racing that were terribly abusing the animals, forcing them to race when injured, injecting them with drugs to push them past the normal points of endurance, but in a way that ruins the horse effectively. Animal servitude is a thing, and as much as I'm heartened by a move towards alternatives to meat-eating, and I think hopefully a more progressive attitude generally towards animal welfare, I'm not going to rail against the machine and say horse racing is bad, let's abolish it. I just wish there was more controls in place to ensure that the animals are well taken care of across the board. And 
also say, I'm sure more often than not, horses are taken care of well. It's a little bit of an uncomfortable... It taints the sport when you have slightly any, evidence yeah. that it happens at all. And this fits into my nutshell, by the way. Yeah. Blind man forces his horse to run really fast. I'm surprised you didn't say blind man gets his ass kicked repeatedly in Tijuana or as something. As a boxer, <laughs> they have that note as well. It's not my nutshell, but yeah. He's a bad boxer. He gets his ass handed to him. Bev asked if she should watch this movie with me. She's never seen it, and she asked, should I watch that? And I thought, I bet she's going to hate parts of it. And watching it by myself, I remembered she definitely would have. And one of them was the very unsettled moment where you see the horse being abused and it swings over and Tom's watching both of this, Chris Cooper's character. Then you see Red taking on four guys at once. <laughs> I think we get the message there. I had to do like a little bit of a double take when I saw that too. They're on both ends of the paddock. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, you've got literally four handlers trying to corral Seabiscuit. And on the far other end, I don't even know what they're fighting about. It's just Toby Maguire holding a bucket and a hay bale. Because he fought everybody at that point in his life. I think just the idea. Ang- they're really pushing hard at the idea that he's just got anger over being As abandoned. does the horse. Yeah. The look on Chris Cooper's face as he looks to the horse and looks back at Toby Maguire. Back at the horse. Yeah. Back at Toby Maguire. And if it had been... Back at the horse. He does it three times. Is it three? (laughs) If it had been Beavis and Butthead, the movie, where the TV's been stolen, one of the two, Beavis or Butthead, I think it's Butthead, looks at the window, looks at the TV, looks at the window, looks at the TV, probably about 20 times or something. (laughs) And that's supposed to be funny. And this one very closely comes to being a parody of itself by that exact point. Yeah, very close. It reminded me of a lot of Simpsons episodes where they make fun of Homer's stupidity. You're still here? Wow, you really are dumb, something said. Not Mm -hmm. good. You mentioned off the top that and this kind of links into what you were saying about scenes that are a little cringeworthy or don't work, or in my mind anyway, bloat the movie way more than it should. The screenwriters for this, or the people that adapted the book, made some really interesting choices. That was the director, Gary Ross. Was it? Mm -hmm. Okay. So where they decided to be true to historic events and where they decided to insert a little bit of narrative fiction for the purposes of the movie, I thought was really strange and at times didn't really work. Like Red Pollard's upbringing. Mm Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the movie, you see him, and he's an affluent kid. His father's wealthy. They have a horse paddock in the backyard, it looked like. And then they're reading poetry. Emily Dickinson, they're reciting off memory at the dinner table kind of stuff. And then you've got the shot of the Great Depression, right? Black Friday happens. Everyone's losing their money. And then the next thing you see is the shanty towns with Pollard's dad, literally depressed in the Depression, mm. sitting around, and Red shows up with two bucks in his hand. And they sell him off later on. But the reality of things is Red Pollard's family owned a mill. The real guy now. Yeah, real life. He owned a mill in Edmonton, or the Edmonton area, in Alberta, Canada, so that's true. And they were affluent. But in 1915, there was evidently a catastrophic flood of the Saskatchewan River that washed away thousands of people's homes, including the mill, and the family's fortunes were literally washed out overnight in 1915. So 14 years before the Great Depression and the (laughs) stock market crash. After that, they were very poor and destitute. It had nothing to do whatsoever with the stock market crash. At the point, I'm trying to be shorthand there, I think, to make the point, the Depression hurt everybody, and it hurt this family too, even though something else hurt them. Yeah, but... I'm not excusing it, but I think no, that's no, probably what they're doing. But for the purposes of, let's say, Red's anger or narrative storytelling, is it more effective to show him and his family being rich and affluent, and then this catastrophic natural disaster literally wipe everything out in a split second? And then rage against the unfairness of the world. He should be ten times as furious. Yeah, rather than the manipulations of a few stock market brokers that catastrophically... And also hurt the Howard family, but they still were able to get by. Charles wasn't suffering that badly. He was hit by it. Everyone was hit by it, I guess. In that case, that was relatively true to life, although I think his son was a little older when he died, Charles Howard's son. But Charles Howard also had, I think, four other children. 
oh, that you're not depicted in this film. <laughs> never see them referenced. I've got Seabiscuit now. I don't <laughs> need those punks. Whatever. So I often rail about things to complain about choices that screenwriters make. But how often have I talked about why do we have this romantic subplot in a movie and how I feel it's extraneous? In the case of Red Pollard, he had an accident with another one of Charles Howard's horses, which we see depicted, although fictionalized, but still depicted towards the end of this movie. Right? And it's a horrifying moment when his leg is snapped and he's dragged behind that horse that yeah. goes nuts. I think in reality, though, the horse actually fell on him and it crushed his arm and okay. his shoulder and his ribs. He almost died. While he was recuperating, apparently he fell in love with his nurse that was looking after him and they got married and they had a family. If you're ever going to have a romantic subplot for one of your leads... This feels like the movie to do it in because it really happened. It's the nurse that literally nurses you back to health and then becomes your wife and your life partner forever. And they didn't depict it at all. He has no romantic connections yeah, in this movie. Yeah, we always ask if you can score at movies. <sighs> Elizabeth Banks, even though she's got that dark hair and doesn't really work on her so much, she's one of my favorites. So, oh, yes. <laughs> but yes, you're right about the fact that it says Nissan-Law, apparently, and she's also the wrong ethnic group. She should be, would you say, Mexican? Zapata, I think her name was. Okay. The rest of the movie is very chaste, and it made me very flaccid. <laughs> oh. And it would have helped if Toby Maguire could have got some that he actually got in reality, because Toby Maguire... Well, Toby Maguire did get some in this movie. In Tijuana, he hires the prostitute that one night. Oh, true. Although he doesn't seem very happy about it when she's like, hey, can we get this thing moving along? He's like, "Yeah." All right, yeah. That's where you see the whole eye thing, yes, right? Yes, exactly. And incidentally, we talked about this in Rocky, because of Creed two two weeks ago, and how he should have had a bad eye for the rest of that series, and he shouldn't have been able to fight up to that, for that matter, after the very first Rocky movie, when right. Creed basically blinds him. But I do feel like that movie, and for me personally, and now read in this movie, that people are taking shots at the people with weak eyes, <laughs> us who are somewhat sight-impaired, and fuck you for doing so. Are you going to start an action group on behalf of people with... Hashtag I2. <laughs> E-Y-E-2. <laughs> Not for people who are blind, mind you. People who are impacted to a certain degree in only one eye. A very specific group of people. The unfortunate thing here also is that I got LASIK, and basically it was a waste of time. <laughs> Never get shingles in your left eye, people. <laughs> <laughs> now, we were talking about the depiction of the sport, by the way. We didn't quite finish some points I wanted to make about that. I think yeah. the horse racing itself looks pretty accurate in general. They use a lot of fake horse heads for tight close-ups, and they have the quote-unquote horse moving in such a way that it looks like... Because when you get so close, you're not really focusing on any part of the horse... I think if we've been looking closer at the horse heads in some of the close-up scenes, but you're focusing on the actor because mm -hmm. Tobey Maguire often is talking to George. The only movie that this guy's ever done, what's his name again here? Gary Stevens, a real jockey who was Ronnie oh, really? in that TV show Luck, but this is the only movie he's ever made. And they spend a lot of time talking when they're in close-up and whatnot, and they're not even friendly rivals. They're just friends, but they are rivals because they are on opposite horses all the time. Yeah, I thought the depiction of horse racing was actually one of the better parts, aside from the period pieces that I thought were also very accurate, as you said earlier. Mm. Yeah, the horse racing was pretty cool. The audio was well done. The visuals were well done. Mm -hmm. I had no idea that they used fake horse heads, but we aren't looking for that. And probably some visual effects, as in digital. I didn't read about that, but surely there's some of that. Probably increasing yeah. the number of horses on tracks. You only use what you really have, and then you add later on. They actually, I was reading about this, don't hit horses with sticks. And this is talked about by Red a little bit. He says to George, when George is going to race in the big match race, we'll get to that point in a minute, show him the stick at a certain point. Yeah. And he doesn't go on about this, but I was reading that you don't, maybe ever, but in the case of this horse at least, you don't ever hit the horse. This is what I want you to do. It's almost like saying, I'm pressing the gas now. Literally show him the riding crop. Mm -hmm. And then he goes to that next gear. And I think a lot of people think, and maybe this does happen, maybe this has happened. We've made clear we don't know a ton about horse racing. 
So maybe horses have been whipped, but that's not what's happening in this movie. They're basically saying that to us. Yeah, it's a riding crop, and it is meant for hitting the haunches of the horse. It's not to hurt the horse, because I take it their hide, their flesh is thick Could enough. take it. Yeah, It'd could... probably be like me doing that to your shoulder. That doesn't hurt you. Yeah, so it'll spur them on. And incidentally, Ryan, that almost certainly crippled me. Your gentle pat on my back was I need you tomorrow in- incredibly to play painful. On our team. We have a full day, though, for you to recover. So. Yeah, I'll see what I can do. I'll get some stem cells injected in there. <laughs> but some horses respond differently, right? Some... It will spur them on. It'll be the signal to go faster. Let's go, let's go. But for others, they might react fearfully to it or be startled by it. So I think in the case of Seabiscuit, he was probably the latter. So it's like, show him this. Yes. Don't hit him, but show him. And it'll be the message to, okay, let's kick it up a notch. There's a great relationship between man and horse in this movie. It's not subtle at all. But Red and Biscuit are obviously friendly as much as you can be with a horse. And that's one of the best moments in this film when they're reunited. They both have bum legs, Red because of the bad accident. And Seabiscuit, because just coincidentally, when Georgie's been riding him for a while, he's just getting old, and they're talking about maybe putting him down. And when the two of them meet up in the middle, and they're being drawn to each other, no, no, man, I'll come to you. That's a really touching moment, actually. Yeah, it was one of those things that, within the context of manipulating the reality of what actually happened in 1938, or 1936 to 1938, or whatever the time frame is, I think if I'm willing to change some of the historic events for the sake of this movie, given my druthers, I would... Let's get the DeLorean we'll go change the events. Oh no, I thought you wanted to have Doc Brown pop up in the middle of the race and go, Marty, the terrorists, they follow us back. Go 88 miles an hour on Seabiscuit. No, but have that precede the race with War Admiral. The injury. Yes. I know in reality it did happen afterwards, and Seabiscuit did come back and race. His best days at that point were behind him, and I think within a year or two he retired for good. So the movie depicts that he's got bad legs, meaning the horse does, Seabiscuit. And then the very last race, not surprisingly, the movie's almost over. You know that logically Biscuit and Red are going to win the very last race, and they do. Nice last shot, too. You see the open track, no one's in front of them, and it just fades to black as they're about to obviously win the race. But you're saying the injuries that Biscuit had before happened, and then he raced War Admiral? No, no, no. The broad timing of events as they appear in this movie, as I understand anyway, are true. He raced War Admiral and won, and then... Well, he didn't, actually. It was... George. George was racing for him. When I say he, I mean Seabiscuit. And then it was later that he ruptured whatever tendon it was, and I think also broke his leg at the same time, and wasn't sure if he was ever going to race again, all that kind of stuff. But within the context of watching this movie... There's so much time dedicated to the buildup of Seabiscuit and the fairly true to life, as I understand it, advertising campaign for this matchup of the century between War Admiral and Seabiscuit. And they spend a lot of time banging on that drum. And then the match happens, and it felt like a perfect climax moment for a movie. True. But then I look at the runtime, and there's like another 45 minutes after that, and you wonder what's going to happen. And of course, there was the injury to Seabiscuit and the shared recuperation between Red and Seabiscuit. And I agree, there's merit to having that on screen, because like you said, it's a touching bond between the jockey and the horse. That's the real story, too, I think, is their relationship. So it can end with that big race, even though logically, in a Rocky movie, for example, it would end with a big fight. It wouldn't be... You see, Rocky can't read. That's a whole other movie. To have that much runtime after the big race, and again, have it end on a race, it felt a little bit hollow because they've already had the epic win. I'm not against continuing beyond the race. I'm not against showing the injury or the recuperative 
time that the two spent together or any of that, but I think there probably would have been a more effective way to do it. They blew their wad and then they kept on fucking? <laughs> Kinda, yeah, yeah. It was like uh, They did a- score their own movie. Yeah. <laughs> this is good, but somewhat less satisfying somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I should have gone home after the first one. I don't know about you, but I got a little bit tired at a certain point of this movie. Like you said, it's got a long runtime, right? And the constant negativity displayed by Seabiscuit got a little bit wearisome to me. Anytime anybody asked him a question, all he would say was, nay. Uh, nay, nay, nay. Dad jokes. He <laughs> loves them. There's a song in Robert Altman's last movie, Prairie Home Companion, Woody Harrelson and John C. Riley. It's called, I think, Bad Jokes. Man, I love them. And they're singing together. It wasn't dad jokes back then. That's not what people called it when that movie came out. You would have loved those dad slash bad jokes. I'm also pretty certain that the only reason that Red and Mr. Howard were able to take Seabiscuit, who up to that point had been a highly unsuccessful racer or racehorse, and turn him into a champion is because they realized the importance of nutrition and just put him on a stable diet at that point. Oh, my God. I'm being serious with these now. That's All a right. sequence in the film. That's, that's two. Okay. I'm this sure is where I more. wish I had a drum just so I could just give you yeah. the whole like. Tick <laughs> I had to get a few in. I couldn't let this movie go without it. Well, a you few. talked about diet. We have to give credit to Tobey Maguire. I don't like when people dwell on this too much when actors lose or gain a lot of weight for a role. But Maguire did lose a lot of weight for this role in between the Spider Man movies where he had to be pretty buff and athletic. Not to say he's not athletic in this movie because obviously he is. It is a sports movie, in fact. But he is supposed to be smaller, obviously, than he already was. Not that he's the biggest guy in the world anyway. Maguire is 5'8". Red Pollard was 5'7". Both yeah. of those heights are pretty tall for jockeys, so he had to lose as much weight as possible. Because apparently if your weight is a certain amount over what it's supposed to be, then they somehow weigh down the horse, they add weight to it, or something like that. So, so they make the horse slower. I didn't really understand how that worked either, but I think that's the handicap races that are mentioned at times in this movie when they're talking about the races that they're running or winning or want to be part of. Yeah, it has something to do with weight and the weigh-ins of the jockeys that they might add physical weights to the saddles of the horses. But you're right, it doesn't really impact this movie except that they do repeatedly bang on the drum that Red Pollard is very big for a jockey at 5'7", five, five, 115. I almost called him the blind giant in my nutshell, but I thought that was a little confusing. Now, do you think if you're on the shorter end of leading men actors, which I guess Tobey Maguire kind of was at this point. At 5'8", yeah, yeah. yes. But also leading men at this point. He kind of, maybe not really leading men, but at least a prominent actor. If you're a shorter guy and you see this role come down the pipe and you read the script, you're like, oh my God, I have to do this because they spend so much time telling me how big I am and how tall I am. It's got to be a little bit of an ego pump He's got you. ego issues, so maybe that's yeah. true. We just mentioned Back to the Future from minutes ago. How about Michael J. Fox? Doc! I'd He's look, the right height. I would have loved to see him in this role. I assume that his... Uh, Parkinson's, Parkinson's yeah. would have been too bad for him. He hadn't been on screen since, I think, the mid-90s, and this is 2003. So I think he'd been in some TV shows, especially as a guest star once in a while, but I don't think he made a movie on screen because he was the voice in Stuart Little. But that's right. different when you're in a recording booth. I don't know the last time he was in a movie, especially in a major role. And this would have been, I guess, the second lead behind Jeff Bridges. Really, it's the first lead. He's been in the movie more than Bridges is, I think. We had this conversation about Robert Redford in The Natural. Who would you have preferred to have seen? I think Tobey Maguire did a good job in the role. And I'm not a big Tobey Maguire fan generally. The first two Spider-Man movies I like well mm-hmm. enough. This Wonder is a- Boys and Brothers are two underrated performances. He's good Wonder Boys in a supporting role to Michael Douglas. One of his best roles, incidentally, Michael Douglas. And Brothers he did 2009 with Gyllenhaal and Natalie Portman. Really intense. And again, I think lost some weight and got really into that role. There's something about him that 
Well, nobody seems to like him in Hollywood, if that's part of your problem. He effectively hasn't worked as mm. an actor since 2014. Bev and I talked about this when we did Spider-Man 2, and it seems like he blackballed himself. And he's the guy that's depicted in Molly's, game. Molly's game, right? That Michael Sarah's playing. Yes. And yeah. apparently he's even worse in reality. That's what has been said. I didn't care for him even before I had heard those kinds of rumors about what he's actually like in real life. Knowing that reinforces that yeah, kind fair. of that predisposition. That. It's not like Kevin Spacey, whose work I always loved, and then you learn about the heinous things that he's accused of. And the rug of gets pulled done. out from under you. Yeah, and I'm not trying to equate being a little bit of an no, asshole I get you. with what Kevin Spacey I think did. a lot but... of people felt that. It's the same thing with Cosby for most of us, who were yeah, shocked that's that point. America's yeah. dad, one of the most respected guys, yeah, the signs were there apparently, but most of us didn't see them. Sorry, I didn't know these details. I don't know how of I was course. supposed to. No, nobody Just because there's a little bit of joke here and there by people like Tina Fey on 30 Rock. Well, I didn't get it. Sorry. McGuire doesn't help us on cause in the first place, so it's easier to say. And this is maybe why Hollywood said, bye. If he was this much of a problem to deal with, they probably were more than happy to say, bye. It might be an actor you really like, and you learn something horrible, things that they've done that are just unspeakably bad, and you can never watch their work again because that's just in the back of your mind, at least in my case. Yeah. In the case of Tobey Maguire... I can watch his stuff, but I was never enthralled by him as an actor. And then you learn a little bit more about him as a person, and it just tainted that much further. And eh, I'm kind of over it. But so, you're agreeing it's a good performance, though. In this one, it's fine. Mm -hmm. I still have trouble buying him. Even if he's supposed to be an asshole in real life, I have so much trouble buying him as an asshole and an aggressive personality on the screen. Maybe it's just his physical size. I don't know. Help you as a squeaky voice. That, too. Like you mentioned right off the top, that scene where Chris Cooper is looking... Oh, the horse is a bit of a dick, and the jockey's a bit of a dick when Tobey Maguire's character is picking a fight with four other guys. I'm watching that, and I'm thinking, I don't buy it. You sound like a 10-year-old boy who's yelling at his older brother and is just 30 seconds from getting thumped. He's a kind of squeaky voice, pipsqueak, that might talk a big game, but then just instantly gets whooped. Which, actually, I guess he kind of does in this movie. He does. He gets beat a lot, because he's not a good boxer. Well, you just mentioned Chris Cooper, who's very strong in the film. He well, is. not very strong in the film. He's actually so understated, it's hard to call him strong in the film. He's playing what Chris Cooper did so well. He won the Oscar the year before this. So when this movie came out, he had actually just won the Oscar, because, of course, the show was in 2003, for adaptation, which is a much different role than he usually played. But this is what he tended to play when he worked with John Sayles a lot in the 90s and whatnot. Lone Star, a really good movie by John Sayles, where he's not the same as this at all, but similar-ish. Hmm. And they aged him up, because Cooper wasn't old enough to play the actual Tom Smith. Right. So they did all kinds of makeup things on him. And Bridges, especially early on, is aged down because we see him as a young man failing as a bike repair guy. Again, not a very subtle message. And maybe this is Laura Hillenbrand's fault in the book. But he doesn't make it work as a bike repair guy, but then gets into cars and gets big with that. Then it's horses. So in a way, you're going backwards. You're going technology, going up from cars to bikes, back to horses. Although he's always into cars. It's always his main business. Yes. But I think that Bridges and Cooper were pretty well cast and did a pretty good job. We just talked about Tobey Maguire not being the most likable guy in the world, according to what people say, or what you even feel about him. But Bridges is the opposite. Who doesn't like Jeff Bridges? Yeah, no, he's great. It was fun to watch Chris Cooper aged up, and like you said, Jeff Bridges at times anyway aged down, because it's like one of those natural situations with Robert Redford and... Wilford Brimley. Wilford Brimley, yeah, the diabetes, man. <laughs> they were within two years of being the same age, and the same is true of Chris Cooper and Jeff Bridges. They're within two years of one another, but of course Cooper's playing the much older character, even later in the movie when Charles Howard is meant to be, I think, somewhere near 60 years old at that point. So knowing that these guys are approximately the same age, but one's playing the cantankerous old man to the younger, smooth-talking businessman is kind of a fun little acting job on their part, and I thought they both did it well. You know who they wanted for Tom Smith? No. And Cooper was good. No shade on him, but Robert Duvall. Oh, I First of all, he's older, of course. I could see it. Chris Cooper plays a very mellow character in this mm -hmm. role. He's very placid and very hoarse, whispery. And well, I we got see very little... 
breathing from Chris Cooper that we would have got from <laughs> Bobby Duval. <laughs> Every time he's giving him advice about how to run the race or train the horse, you have to pause and <laughs> come out quick out of the gate and then let him catch up at the back end and look him in the eye. You're not the only one who knows this horse, Bobby. Did you get a real Willem Dafoe vibe off of George, that jockey no. character? There was something about his face every time I saw it. Oh, it, his look. I thought he meant his acting style. Not his acting style. Just, For a non-actor, I think he does a pretty good job. He's got a lot of screen time, too. Big has, cast, but there's only maybe eight people we give any kind of shit about. Oh, I don't want to forget, by the way. I'm looking at the IMDb list right now. The narrator, David McCullough, yeah. is how you pronounce his name. I thought for sure, and I made a note right away when the movie started, it was the same guy who did the voiceover in the baseball series that Ken Burns did. So Ken Burns Baseball back in 94. And I wanted to see what else David McCullough had done. And I'm looking at it, it says Civil War, which I believe Burns did, but I don't see baseball. So I click on the baseball one, and it's some other guy. And you and, were and, crushed. No, but the reason why I bring this up is because I checked before we started recording today, and it sounds like the exact same person. <laughs> McCullough's won Pulitzer's, and I'm forgetting the other guy's name now. He's a journalist. Damn, I'll have to put it on the website. But that guy won an Emmy for doing the voiceover work, or maybe for producing, actually, the baseball series. Mm -hmm. So they both won awards. I thought it was the exact same voice, and it isn't McCullough's fault, the voiceover in Seabiscuit. But man, we get it. Why are you telling us this? Although the worst voiceover is the last thing that's said, and that's when Tobey Maguire does it at the very end. Totally unnecessary to begin with, but also he literally says... We kind of fixed each other, too. Oh, yeah, just where they smack you I upside the head. I think we know that. We knew that an hour and a half ago. We literally watched you heal each other through several montage scenes, and then you have to go and say it. I was feeling the Shawshank Redemption moment at the end of that movie, too. I kind of expected Morgan Freeman to pop up at any moment and be like, Red Pollard raced through a mile of shit that day <laughs> and came out squeaky clean on the other side, or something like that. As you said, much of the narration through this movie was a little bit heavy-handed, unnecessary, and often kind of irritating to me, mm. especially the moments where they really tried to hammer home the importance of the matchup race. Match race. Match race, sorry, yes, between War Admiral and Seabiscuit. There's one of those interregnum scenes where David McCullough's narrating over scenes of the New Deal work being done, the highways and all that, and he goes... Billions of dollars were being funneled into the economy, and that brought it back. But what was really important was the <laughs> horse racing. Yeah. Like, that wasn't really what brought America back. I don't think he actually says what was really important was the horse racing. It's just heavily implied that all this industry that was being spurred on by the government and all that was all well and good. But what really saved the soul of America was horse racing. That's a little bit much. And I think it is true that something like 40 million Americans heard the race between War Admiral and Seabiscuit. It wasn't much entertainment back then, for one thing. No, but it was also like a Thursday afternoon. It was the middle of the day. Businesses mm -hmm. closed. Kids were out of school. They're yeah. out of school. Almost like Meriwether, Pacquiao, Battle of Titans from two different divisions meeting head to head, right? East versus West. There was also so much buildup in this too. I don't know how... So much. Was it years? Maybe it's definitely many months, it sounds like, because Sam Riddle, who's Eddie Jones, that was Marla's adoring father in A League of Their Own. I knew I recognized his face and voice. I looked him up and really? thought, oh, I looked at his resume and, oh my God, he's so opposite. Not that he's a dick in this exactly, but he's... Well, he's a bit of a dick. Yeah, and he's War Admiral's owner, and he keeps on refusing to race and refusing to race, and finally they do. This actor, this performance reminded me of Mr. Potter in It's a Wonderful Life. A little bit, yeah. That's not a villain, per se, in this movie, but he does look and sound enough like him. It's yeah, true. he's just got that kind of vibe to him. Oh, the arrogance, though, too. I don't yes. need to race that horse. Yeah. But they do build that up for so long, and it ends up happening at Pimlico yes. in 1938, and the last race of the whole movie is at Santa Anita. We see plenty of horse racing. That's the thing. We talk about depiction of sports in these movies, and sometimes there isn't that much of it. There's a lot of horse racing in this film. Yeah. The War Admiral 
is depicting this movie as this behemoth horse. Mm-hmm. I know but, what you're going to say. They no, were basically the same size. They are the same size. In reality. In reality, Seabiscuit was essentially the great nephew or something of War Admiral because War Admiral's father was... Man of War. Man of War was Seabiscuit's mm-hmm. grandfather, mm-hmm. essentially. Those two actual horses were connected through Man of War, which may be the most famous horse, at least at that point of all time. Maybe still is. One of them, anyway. And why they felt the need to make war admiral out to be this behemoth horse oh there's an easy answer when we do the rocky movies we talked about that you shoot it so stallone or carl weathers look small compared to say drago or even clubber lang maybe same idea you've got to make them the underdog even more than they already were that's the answer i get it i just don't understand the necessity for it it means nothing to me that this horse is bigger than the other one because hollywood thinks they have to spell out every little thing for us in this movie even though it's well done in a lot of ways and it is a thumb up Really thinks that's has to spell it out for you we, so completely. We already have William H. Macy and newspaper headlines and the owners of the horses and the media in this movie all telling us that War Admiral is the greatest horse on the East Coast, that he is the toast of horse racing, that he has won the Triple Crown, that he is effectively undefeated. I get it. He is a fantastic horse. He is the pinnacle of the mountain. He doesn't have to be physically larger than Seabiscuit to build up the dramatic tension for me. I don't care which horse is bigger. I care which horse is faster. Mm -hmm. In the end, that is Seabiscuit. Yeah, so why they felt the need to make that particular change to history is a little bit weird, and I appreciate what you said. That's probably the reason. It's just a little bit nonsensical. The other producers that work with Gary Rossness, by the way, were regulars with Spielberg, Kathleen Kennedy, who now runs Lucasfilm, and Frank Marshall. I think they're married, but they were producers together through a lot of films. They've been nominated together a few times, so maybe part of the problem was... Gary Ross, good filmmaker, did a fantasy film in Pleasantville. Let's have this be a bit of a fantasy. We worked with Spielberg a bunch of times. Gary, we can guide you through this. I don't know. But it makes me feel like here's Gary Ross, who I like, for the most part, the films he's written and directed. He wrote Dave. Now, he wrote Big. Oh, yeah? Big time fantasy. Both of those, really, if you think about it. One literally, and the other one, in a way, a regular guy becomes the president. Yeah. I don't know. I shouldn't be blaming them. I guess maybe the things we're complaining about is the big Hollywood producer saying, we got to make sure the audience gets it. Okay, guys, you're the producers. You know what you're talking about. One thing I've come to realize in doing this with you and talking through these movies is it's something I never fully appreciated before, and it is to what degree and how often these movies do bludgeon you over the head with whatever message they're trying to convey. More often than not, Hollywood movies do. Too often, I should say. Maybe not more often than not, but too often. Too often, certainly. Yeah. Even some of the great ones that we've all loved, and when you watch them more and more, you might think, oh, man, even just bad lines of dialogue. Batman Begins, terrific film. Not good dialogue. Yeah, and few people are more cynical about humanity than I am. <laughs> but even I'm like, people will get it. And they probably would appreciate some of these movies or some of these moments in these movies a little bit more if the filmmakers or, or screenwriters or producers or maybe just the studios who don't trust humanity in general to understand things, if they just left some things explicitly unsaid, imply it, visually depict it, whatever the case may be, just give us something to intellectually chew on sure. or make some interpretations on our own it's not always necessary to do that like sometimes you do just want to make a very clear and explicit point and you don't want to risk some people misinterpreting it i get that but man it happens so often i think that... sports movies are probably more guilty but then rom-coms are too but yeah. I think sports movies and of course that's what we're covering are as guilty for that as any genre there is and now 31 movies in, this is maybe the most impressive production we've seen, if you think about it, all things entailed. <laughs> yeah, and now that you say that, maybe the ultimate evolution of scoring at the movies is us transitioning into rom-coms, Ryan. The <laughs> title still works. <laughs> works more. Yeah, it works more. We'll just start watching these things together and see where nature takes us. I didn't believe the romance. <laughs> You'll just see me teary-eyed all the time. I'm a sucker for those But speaking things. of romance, I already said a little bit about Elizabeth Banks. 
just gotta say she's one of my favorites we recently covered spider-man 2 bev and i did and i did brightburn not long before that so i've seen a lot of her lately i'm not complaining at all she's becoming a mogul she's directing i think it comes out some point this year or next year charlie's angels oh, yeah? i think she's in it as well i think she's bosley Is but she she's bosley? directing that she's been producing things for a while including the hunger games which she's also in with gary ross i like elizabeth banks a lot too and this movie much like jeff bridges I like her when she really lays into a role, like she really gives mm-hmm. it, because there are a few people that can be more expressive and more fun. Than and she's a little nuts. Thing. I love that. I've said a, she's a little. Nuts. I've said that many times about her. She's got a little bit of a screw loose. You see it when she was in Catch Me If You Can, which may not have been her very first role, but it's the first one that people really talk about. She's the bank clerk. Leo says, "I'm gonna take you to a steak dinner." She does this weird laugh, and even from then, she seems like she's a little crazy. Ah, this Slither. That was the first movie that I can remember seeing. Oh, no, I remember seeing her in The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Where she's also a little nuts. But she is way nuts in that movie Mm -hmm. and so much fun. There's one line that stands out in that movie when Elizabeth Banks peels off from the rest of her group and stabs one of the monsters and slithers with like a signpost or something and the other character just turns around and says, that bitch is crazy or something (laughs) like that. And she really is. When she's at her best, she's energetic and she's charismatic on the screen. And in this role, she's just not given much of an opportunity to She's dullness and this is not Elizabeth Banks. Dullness is not Elizabeth Banks, I wouldn't say. This is an entirely non-sequitur-ish type comment, but I thought it was kind of fun. Naming conventions in horse racing are always really fun, and in the case of Man of War, he sired foals or whatever the hell. So he has War Admiral, who is the quasi-villain of this movie, and he also gave birth to, or sired, Hardtack. So Man of War is a warship. You've got War Admiral, which is pretty self-explanatory. Hardtack is a type of baked biscuit that sailors historically took on because it stayed edible anyway forever. And then sea biscuit. Sea biscuit. There's other horses that are connected and that have similar nautically related names. But apart from rain, is there any water in this movie? I don't think there is. No, I guess not. Which is kind of ironic. Maybe they drink water. (laughs) No, they only drink liquor that I can see in this movie. There's a lot of liquor drinking. Well, I'm assuming that Red drinks water when he's dieting, when he was only taking two peas and a tiny scoop of potatoes. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That was actually maybe Elizabeth Banks' most fun sequence in this movie was when she's watching Tobey Maguire's character eat, and at first he has a massive plate of food, and she gives him like the... When he's recovering from his injury. Yes. Oh, you're hungry kind of moment. Mm -hmm. And then he takes a tiny plate of food because he's clearly trying to drop weight so Mm -hmm. that he can get back into racing. Even though they think he's never going to race again because that's what the doctor told him. And then the camera just pans so close up on Elizabeth Banks, and she gives a very deliberate raised eyebrow like, Mm -hmm. oh, what are you up to, mister? Mm -hmm. She may be wasted, but she does have one nice moment right towards the end in that last race as Santa Anita because she's hanging with Pumpkin Tom Smith's idea let's have Seabiscuit hang with some other animal yes apparently that's based on reality another horse and a dog Seabiscuit always had company and it makes sense animals especially like horses want company they're better off with company so this horse Pumpkin I guess it's based on a real one was always with Biscuit and in that last race there is Marcella hanging out with Pumpkin until she jumps on the car because Pumpkin needs love and attention too (laughs) Pumpkins also need love look at Banks pitching in and doing the right thing there you go all right, so how was your beer there? It was pretty tasty, actually. I felt a little bit like William H. Macy's character, just constantly sipping on his mixed drinks. <laughs> tick-tock, tick-tock. Tick-tock, even to the point where Jeff Bridges gives him the questioning look at whatever it was, 10 a.m. or 9 a.m. in the morning when he's sipping something out of a glass. Hair of the dog. <laughs> right. So yeah, it was tasty. Very weird for a beer, though. There's a definite whiskey punch to this one, okay. which is strange. My beverage is gone. Off topic, but I want to bring this up because I just thought of it for some reason. We're talking about nice moments in the film. I do love the moment when Red goes to Charles and asks for money. He just needs 10 bucks. Charles doesn't even think about it, hands him 20. Yeah. And I'm glad that McGuire didn't cry in that moment, but you can see the emotion in his face, which is nobody's given me anything for a long time. 
I'm already basically begging you and that's already killing my spirit to have to do that. But you've become this father figure because obviously the father figure needs the son figure. And not only are you helping me, but you're helping me twice as much as I asked you to. And this isn't a loan. This is here. There's money for you. That was a really nice moment. It was a moment that I thought was going to get paid off a little bit more towards the end as well. He says, I need to go to a dentist. Like you said, the Charles character is a father figure at this point and gives him the money regardless of why he needs it. I thought Red was needing the money to get his eyes tested or something like that because it immediately followed on, or at least shortly followed up on, I think, the moment when they find out that he's blind in one eye. I can't see out there! I can't see out there! He's blind in one eye! All these big moments were in the trailer, I think. Yeah, all of them were in the trailer. And I thought for sure we'd find out that he went to get his vision tested and found out that it was the, you know, I don't know, boxing or something that caused it. Kind of like Rocky finding out that he has brain trauma in Rocky V. Now you see nothing, Red! And then, now I almost want to cave the whole side of your face in. <laughs> he does get his face caved in over and over. But it never gets paid off again. He takes the money, goes away, says, thank you very much, I appreciate this a lot. And then it's never spoken of. And then I don't really think we hear much about his vision ever again after that it's either. true. It's conveniently forgotten. But maybe that's supposed to be suggesting, I'm giving you this money because you're basically my son. And I would have given my son money too. Because clearly Red's living with them. Maybe this isn't based on reality. But in this movie, he's living with them the rest of his life. So you don't think it was a conjugal relationship? Oh, maybe. <laughs> he got the 10 extra bucks he didn't need, so probably. Yeah. Red gave, needs love, too. Gave him the 20 and a real meaningful wink. And a, he may like love a, that horse, but I hope he doesn't love that, that horse. Yeah, yeah. Listen, or isn't loved by that horse. There are movies about that, incidentally. Documentaries. That's a good segue into our next movie. <laughs> Whoa. Okay, hold on. I don't know if that's the best segue into the next movie. But it's appropriate, because I talked about documentaries. And that's what we're going to do in two weeks. We've only done one other documentary. It was Murder Ball. Pumping Iron. So not only is it a documentary, but it's about bodybuilding. We are here to pump you up. Yep. I haven't seen this one in a long time, but I think it's going to be a fun one. And it is showing Arnold right near the beginning of his movie career. I guess this is post-Hercules in New York, I believe though, right? so, but before he was in, around the same time, I guess, as he was in Stay Hungry, and certainly before he was in Conan and Terminator and all that. And in a way, Arnold is performing in this movie because that's part of what made him a great bodybuilder. He psychs out Lou Ferrigno. Yeah, he does. But we'll talk about that when we get to it in two And weeks. we get to hear all about Arnie telling us about how he gets to come every day yeah, at the right. gym. Yeah, there are always some things that don't age well because some of the things Arnold said really don't age well. <laughs> Okay, I'm at MovieFiend51. He is at Scoring at Movies. The website, top100project.com remains. We're on Stitcher. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts, of course. So go out there on your bike and ride home on the rain. It's just started. <laughs> you, get out into that Get thing. out of my house. I'm going to have my sea biscuit moment right now and just sort of morosely walk in the rain while carrying my sack of poetry books behind me, cursing you, Ryan, for casting me out. It's raining out there. <laughs> i got to work on my Tobey Maguire impression. One day, maybe I'll do a good job with it. Take her easy, dudes. I know that you will.